Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. Good morning. Would you turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 5. We'll pick up reading at verse 5 where Randy left off, and we'll read down through verse 11. Uh, As you're finding that, let me remind you of my supreme confidence in you that you're able to multitask during the service. Fill out the connection card. This is how we get connected to one another uh, in our life together as the body of Christ. Some things to pray for, things to do. I'm especially interested that you would like to help with the country fair today, this evening. You must be here. If you don't, I have to eat all the leftovers. They're really good, but, okay? Thank you. Somebody said amen. That's all I need. One amen. Yeah, I know it was my son, but I take what I can get. All right. Well, we turn to Romans 5. Let me remind you where we are in the sweep of Romans, uh, sort of Romans in a nutshell uh, kind of thing. Uh, We started out looking at chapter 1 that we are created for the glory of God. Something has gone tragically wrong. We have substituted, uh, created things for the creator. We are worshiping things instead of God. Uh, That's called idolatry. It results in the rank sin uh, that we see in the world, and uh, that is why we are liable for the wrath of God. Um, and so, liable for the wrath of God, we try to escape that. We use religion. It doesn't work. We use morality. It doesn't work. Uh, there's no way to get out from under the wrath of God except this. Now the righteousness of God is revealed in Christ Jesus, apart from the law and the prophets, even though they bear witness of him. And so, uh, we see now that uh, we are brought into a right relationship, justified with God by his grace, appropriated through faith, Abraham, chapter 4, is the supreme example from the Old Testament of what that faith means, investing your life in God's promises, and uh, that faith is what we're called to uh, in our relationship with the Father. Now, in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, what Paul does is he turns to uh, what this justification means, what this right relationship with God means now in terms of relating to God. That's 5, 6, 7, and 8. Then in 9 through 11, he talks about Uh, Well, what about God's election? How does that work? And we find out that it has always been grace and not race. Then in chapter 12, Paul talks about what is the meaning of a right relationship with God with respect to your relationship with other people. So that's where we're aiming. Right now, we're going to be talking for the next several weeks about uh, our relationship with God, what his grace means, justification by grace uh, means in that regard. And then when we get to chapter 12, what it means with regards to other people. You remember this all started in chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, therefore, (laughs) and we're looking at the therefore part of it. So that's why we're here. Now, in chapter 5, Paul will deal with uh, the meaning of being reconciled to God, being justified. We have peace with God. We are reconciled to God. In chapter uh, 6, he'll talk about the fact that we are on the road of sanctification. Uh, We are living lives in which the Holy Spirit is conforming us and shaping us to be uh, holy in, in, our, in our living. Chapter 7, we'll see that we are liberated from the law. Chapter 8, we'll see that we are adopted as God's children. So that, that's sort of the sweep of Romans, just in a, 
in a nutshell. We're in chapter 5, just launching out on what it means to be justified uh, with respect to our relationship with God. Uh, so that's what we're looking at this morning. I want to pick it up in verse 5, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5. It's the end of a long sentence, you remember, but you'll get the hang of it as, as we're reading along. We need this in order to make uh, sense of verse 6. But anyway, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And before we pray, we are thankful for those who, who have served and those who have, who have given their lives uh, for our freedoms. You know, one of the things we do is we gather together and we worship. One of the things we don't do, we don't post guards at the doors to see if the police are coming. Uh, not yet, we don't. Um, what, we, we gather together and we sing and we, and we praise God and we don't wonder if we're going to be arrested and thrown into jail, at least not yet. Uh, so we still have our freedom. We still have that freedom uh, to worship. And that is a gift of God, but it's been secured by the sacrifice of so many. Those who have given their lives, it's interesting to me that God decided that this would be the text we would arrive at on Memorial Day weekend when um, we're thinking about those who gave their lives and we're reminded that Jesus Christ gave his life for us that we might be set free from sin. I want you also to remember families, uh, people who are on the home front while loved ones are, are overseas or in places of danger or fighting in the lines. Remember their families, remember their children. Um, there's sacrifice at many levels that are made. We want to be thankful to those who sacrifice. We give the glory to God. Let's bow together in prayer. And Father, especially we give you glory for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who shows us that love is not a meaningless affection. It's not just a tangential sort of a feeling, but rather your love is love in action, love that gives, love that sacrifices, love that transforms. And so we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who gave his life for us. And we pray that in our day-to-day -day lives, we would be uh, living testimonies of gratitude um, to those people who have given their lives, but, Father, to our, our Savior who gave his life for us, that in all these things you would be glorified, this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Most of you will recall that uh, uh, I've been suggesting that Paul, as he was writing the book of Romans, had an imaginary friend. Uh, he's sitting, writing out what he believes the gospel is, and in Paul's mind, uh, there's an imaginary friend there who's sort of challenging everything that, that Paul writes, everything that Paul says. Um, this imaginary friend is religious, he's Jewish, he loves the scripture, he loves the law, he loves his heritage, he loves his tradition, 
His whole life is invested in the Jewish approach uh, to God through the law. And so as Paul is writing and he's talking about a gospel of grace and a gospel that is appropriated by faith and not by works, his imaginary friend keeps saying, well, Paul, you didn't think about this. Oh, yeah, Paul, what about that? And uh, in many ways, Paul is responding uh, to that imaginary friend talking to him. The technical name for that is a diatribe, uh, but I like imaginary friend. It's a, it's a much better term. Um, but here's, here's what Paul is, is doing, though. He's, he's writing about the fact that we're reconciled to God. We have peace with God. It's all God's doing. It's all by grace. All we do is believe. It's appropriated by faith. And then he comes to the end of that paragraph that Randy unpacked for us last week. And he says, you know, and we, we have such assurance of this. We have assurance of peace with God and reconciliation. And the reason we do is because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point, the imaginary friend steps up. And he says, wait a minute, Paul. What I know and what you know is that God doesn't love everybody. He loves us when we're good. God loves us when we keep the law. God loves us when we go to temple, when we do the sacrifices, when we keep all those things and obey all those things that God has told us to do. Paul, you know that. God only loves us when we're good. And Paul's response to that is basically, no, not really. Actually, God loves us when we're bad. And the significance of that is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're in need of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Now, where this hits home for me uh, this morning is that I know God loves me up here in the head. I, I know that. Um, in fact, I can prepare a sermon for you if you like. Probably preach it now if you want. Um, and, you know, and, and it would just be about the four Greek words for love. You know, and what they mean, and God's love is an agape love, and that, you know, that's good stuff, you need to know it, study it, and all that, but that's head stuff. We'd go back and we'd talk about, well, the Hebrew word for love is hesed, and that means uh, God's covenant love, his steadfast love, and, and we would trace that through the Old Testament and see it prefigured there as, as it's fulfilled in Christ, and, you know, and we could talk about all that, and it would be more head knowledge. See, but most of us think or know in our head that God loves us because, after all, everybody knows that God loves everybody. I mean, that's what God does. That's his job, is to love us. And so this sort of a head knowledge. By the way, not everybody knows that God loves everybody. Uh, you go to the other world religions, you don't find the love of God unless they've been impacted by uh, the Christian gospel. You, you ask the Hindus in India, does, does God do the gods love you? No, they're too busy with their mythological contests and so forth, and we're just trying to keep them happy. You ask a Buddhist, does God love you? And the Buddhist says, who's God? I didn't know there was a God. There is no God. There's just the allness of the oneness. Om. <laughs> you ask a Muslim, does God love you? And he'd tell you, well, I, I searched the Quran, and there I find out that God loves good Muslims. But he doesn't love everybody. Doesn't love the infidel. You ask the world religions. I mean, just go back in history. I mean, uh, one, one of the things I, I like to do is, is ask people, well, you know, if all, if all religions are the same, you know, did the Aztecs believe that the gods loved them? No! <laughs> 
They, they believed the gods were hungry. And uh, so you had to have human sacrifice. So this idea that God loves everybody is actually a Christian idea. And the only reason people in our society will say that, you know, when you talk to your, your non-Christian friends, they say, well, I believe God is love. The only reason they say that is because they have lived in a culture that was shaped up until recently by the Judeo-Christian tradition. So I know in my head that God loves me. I mean, that, that's pretty much settled. My problem is I don't know it in my heart. I just have, I have a tough time really feeling like God loves me individually. I, I, I have less trouble believing he loves you <laughs> for the most part because, um, you know, if you look at somebody else, you see that they're flawed and you know that they have problems and un- unlovely things in their lives, but... You don't see the inner workings of that. In my own life, I see the inner workings. I see the flaws in the outside, but I see the flaws in the inside in my own life. And I wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned and unclean. So this morning, I'd like for us to read the passage of Scripture together with that that idea in mind. How can we experience the love of God? How can we um, know, not just intellectually, but know experientially that God loves us? Now, one of the things that hinders us from knowing and experiencing the love of God are the circumstances of life. You know, you, you go through those times in life and there's hurt and there's pain, there's failure, there's frustration. Uh, sometimes there's, there, there's illness and there are so many bad things going on in life and so many painful things going on in life that you figure, well, where, where is the love of God? I know this love of God, you know, as a theory, but in practice, I, I don't see this love of God working out all that well right now. And so the circumstances of life can oftentimes make us doubt that God loves us in, in, in sort of a, an experiential kind of way. Uh, to answer that, I want for us to, to back up into Romans chapter 5 and uh, uh, Actually, I need to start at verse 1, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, but in, 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 in the first paragraph that, that Randy uh, opened for us uh, last week, uh, one of the things that Paul says is that we have hope in the glory of God. Do you remember that? That was, a, that was like a big deal last week. I hope you wrote it down. You know, we have hope in the glory of God. And not only that, we boast in that hope, we rejoice in that hope. That's, that's, that's just sort of our, our motivating impulse is hope in the glory of of God. But then immediately Paul says, after saying we have hope in the glory of God, in verse 3 he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Wait a minute. I understand rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. I mean, I get that the hope of glory of God is a really big thing. It's a really good thing. I can see rejoicing in that. But Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings? What's with that? And Paul says, well, you know, just, just hang with me on this. We rejoice in our sufferings, even though all these things are going on, and they're real. We're not living in denial that the suffering and the pain and the heartache of life, these things are real. But even though we, we, we have these sufferings, we're rejoicing because that suffering is producing endurance. And that endurance comes because in the midst of suffering, we keep hanging on, we keep hanging on, and after a while, it becomes a habit of hanging on, a habit of endurance. That's called character, proven character. And if that's the character that we have, then we have hope. And what is the hope? The hope is in the glory of God. So here's how it works. In the midst of suffering and in the midst of hardship in life, we fix our eyes on the glory of God. We fix our eyes on the glory of God. 
And what we begin to see then is that the suffering and the heartache of the moment is not the ultimate reality. The everlasting eternal reality is the glory of who God is. Um, I, I, I feel sorry for you if you slept during the choir anthem that we believe that Jesus is coming again. We believe in the midst of our suffering that there's a coming a time when every knee, knees that have been wounded, knees that have been hurting, knees that have been suffering, knees that have been confused, and, and knees that have wandered through life, we believe that every one of those knees is going to bow. And every tongue that has shouted out to heaven, I don't know what's going on here, God. I can't see it. I don't understand it. I can't tell if you love me or not. But every one of those tongues is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The final word in your life is not the suffering. The final word is the glory of God. The final word is not your failures and, 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 and circumstances. The final word is the eternal, everlasting, immeasurable glory of God. And we will spend eternity in his presence. That's our hope of the glory of God. And so in our suffering, we look to the hope of glory. And looking to the hope of glory, we endure the suffering with our eyes fixed on heaven, on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. We think heavenly things, not earthly things, because that's where we belong. And that hope of glory gets us through the suffering of the moment. That's called endurance. And as we endure, we are learning every day what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the more we learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the more it becomes a part of who we are, the Holy Spirit conforming us to the image of God's dear Son. And with that conformity comes character, a proven character in the midst of suffering. And in that suffering, looking to the glory of God, we have even more hope. So if you're doubting, you know, can God love me because look what's going on in my life. Yes, look to the glory of God. Try to think of an example of that. And I thought, maybe Jesus. Maybe Jesus who was rejected, despised, persecuted, whipped, beaten, mocked, crucified, abandoned, betrayed, Yet for the joy set before him, read that, for the glory of God set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame, all for the sake of the glory of God. So circumstances will make us doubt the glory of God. Lift up your eyes, see glorious things. Look at the promises of God and see the, the wonder of who God is and the hope of that glory that is ours in Jesus Christ will carry us through. That's how we know God loves us. Well, the second thing that, that might keep us from uh, experiencing the love of God, and this is going to hurt a little bit, but um, it's my job, uh, it, it's called sin. It's called rebelling against God's will, being actively uh, uh, indifferent to, to, to um, God's design for your life. It's, it's just being indifferent to it. To it. What, what sin is, it's sin is it's just sort of missing out on the mark of what God has designed for us. And as we reject God's design for us, then we wander off from where God wants us. And the further you wander off, the further you are from experiencing the love of God. And sometimes it's our own sin. See, we've been told. We've been told that God loves you only if you're good. I don't know, maybe somebody told you that. Maybe you just picked it up as a 
as a, a sort of a, an implication of what you were hurt. Maybe you, maybe you believe that because that just makes sense. After all, I only love people who are good. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment. But, uh, the, you know, the, the thing is that we think, well, God loves me when I'm good. I know I'm not good. How could God love me? How could God love me? I sometimes wonder about the woman who was taken into adultery. You, you remember the story, it's in, in John chapter 8, that a, a woman was caught in adultery, the very act, and uh, evidently the guy got away. But they dragged her down in front of Jesus, threw her in front of Jesus, and said, hey, look, Jesus, she committed adultery. The law says she must die. And ultimately what Jesus says was, was this. He said, any one of you who is beyond sin, you go ahead. You go ahead and throw some hate at her. I think I'm going to love her. The guy's left. Jesus looked at her and said, where are the people who condemn you? Where are the people who hate you? He said, they're gone. They're gone in the presence of Jesus. They're gone in the presence of Jesus. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And I wonder if in her heart what she heard was, but in point of fact, I love who you are. And that's why I'm telling you this. Go and sin no more. You see, that love is a transforming kind of love. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you find him loving people who are what? Sinners. I mean, terrible, wicked sinners. He loved those evil sinners, and he loved the worst class of sinner known to the New Testament. Government workers. <laughs> they were called tax collectors, but that, okay. Look, I'm just trying to personalize this and help you understand it. God in Christ loved them to the point that he drove the Pharisees and the Sadducees crazy by the way he loved the unlovely and loved the sinner. So a lot of times we don't feel as though God loves us because of our sin, but look what Paul writes about it. In verse 6 he says, for while we were still weak, what a wonderful word. You look that up in, in Little and in, 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 uh, Scott, and uh, you see in classical Greek that word would mean uh, weak, or feeble, it also meant insignificant. When we were weak and unable, when it seemed as though our lives were insignificant, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly are those who are, who are profane and blasphemous and curse God and, and leave him out and drive him out of their lives. Later on, he'll refer to, to us as, as those who are sinners and those who are enemies against God. This is who we are. But the verse again, he says, when we were weak, when we were ungodly, and when we were enemies and sinners against God, at the right time... Christ died for us. The people have tried to explain, what does that mean? At the right time, Christ died for us. And some have said, well, that meant that God was waiting for the Roman Empire so that the Romans would have a network of roads and communication points so that the gospel could spread out all over the globe. Um, he, you know, he got impatient. He should have waited for the internet, but no, 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 he had to go with the, the Roman Empire. I don't think that's what it, meant, what it means at all. Here's what it means. I'll tell you what it means. No, you don't have to worry ever again. I, I'm telling you what it means. When we were enemies toward God, Christ died for us. 
when we needed him the most. That's when Jesus died. At the point at which we were absolutely without hope, Jesus died for us. Now, folks, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. If, if we say we have no sin, we, we make God a liar. If we, we say we, we, we're not you know, struggling with sin now, we're, we're lying and deceiving ourselves. The good news is that God is just and faithful and, and, and that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, but here's the thing. If we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So this sin problem is taken care of. And when you hit those moments when you're looking at your life and saying, you know, I've really blown it. I've done some things that, that just seem to disqualify me, me from the love of God. Understand, that's the very moment at which the love of God is kicking into high gear. That's the very moment at which God's love is, is, is even more real. That's the very moment you need to put your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ where he died in the place for our sins, not because we were good, but because we were dead in our trespasses against him. So as, the, as, as our sins sort of makes it hard for us to, to really think that God loves us, in point of fact, that's the very point of connection of God's love with our lives. When we need him the most, that's when he loves us the most. Okay? Now, another thing that will oftentimes... Um, Keep us from, from believing that God loves us, you know, in an experiential kind of way. Uh, and if I'm stepping on your toes, good. Uh, a lot of times it's because of our attitude towards others. You know, we look at other people and we sort of do this mental calculation, worthy of my love, not worthy of my love, worthy of my time, not worthy of my time. You know, this this somebody that, that uh, my life, I can, I can give a little bit of my life to, and this, this person not... Maybe you're not that way. I'm that way. Debbie's not that way, but, but I'm that way. I mean, this morning, I, 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 I was on the road. It was early in the morning. It was dark. Car comes up behind me. He's got his, his, his bright lights on, and, and he's coming up, and he's right behind me, and he won't go around me. And, he, you know, if I pull over, he pulls over, and, it, you know, all this stuff. And in my mind... I have written this human being off. I haven't even seen him, it, or her. I mean, you know, it could have been one of those drive-itself cars, and maybe it was empty, and I wasted a lot of... Anyway, but, but I'm, I'm, good, I'm doing this whole calculation of what kind of person puts his high beams on and then drives on my back bumper. And it finally dawned on me, it's somebody who's drunk, and you'd better pray he gets home without killing himself or somebody else. And so... Um, but that, that's a Holy Spirit thing and another, another thing. But it, just that, I, you know, we, I think we all tend to do this. We look at people and say, worthy of my time, not worthy of my time. And what we're doing is we're saying, some people are worthy of my love and some people are not worthy of my love. Some people I, are, 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 are okay and some people are not okay and I'll just hang out with the okay people in my estimation. And then what we do is we take this judgmental attitude in which love must be earned or merited, and we overlay that on God. We project that on God and say, if this is the way I love people, that must be the way God loves people. And then it dawns on us, and I'm not one of the lovely people. And it's hard to experience the love of God when you're not loving others as well. This, by the way, is kind of like a principle of the teaching of Jesus, that if you want to know who God is, you need to live out who God is in your in your life, 
things like forgiveness. If you want to know the forgiveness of God, it comes and you experience it. It's a reality in the cross, but you experience the forgiveness of God as you begin to forgive others in a radical, extravagant kind of way. If you want to know the mercy of God, you need to be merciful towards others. If you want to know the generosity of God towards you, you need to be generous towards others. And if you want to know the love of God for you, we need to be more loving towards others so that God's love flows through, the, through us into that relationship. It's, it's really tied into this whole image of God thing, right? where we are created to make God's character and the wonder of who God is, we are created to make that known, to broadcast the glory of God. That's one of the things it means to be created in the image of God. And so if we are going to make his love known, we must love others. And one of the reasons we don't experience that, we don't uh, uh, experience the love of God is we, we have that attitude. Now, this is reflected in verse 7. It says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. That's right. You've got to talk me into it. Uh, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. And, and, and the point is, this is an extraordinary thing. In, in human experience, it's absolutely unusual for people to die for someone who deserves a sacrificial death on their behalf. So much so that we honor it, we, we, we declare holidays for it, because the normal human experience is, yes, we might die if you deserve it, we might sacrifice ourselves if you deserve it, but if you don't, we won't end a report. That's where we are. But God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Try to look at another human being differently. Look, look at the people around you and understand, Jesus died for me when I was a sinner. How can I bear a grudge? How, how, how can I try to get even? How can I withhold forgiveness? And this is what Jesus did for me. This is the love of God. And once you start doing that, once you, you focus on the absolute uh, gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ, his love for us dying in our place, once you, you start to put that into your mind and into your practice and, and into your relationships, then you, then you can say, well, yes, I'm starting to understand that God does love me because it's not merit, it's always grace. One of the other reasons we have trouble thinking God loves us is that we keep returning back to the same old sin problem. You know, old Baptists used to call it the besetting sin. That is, the, you know, the, it's, it's that sin in your life where uh, you, um, uh, you pray about it, you seem to get a handle on it, you stop doing it for a while, and then next month you're back right where you were before. Uh, it's a sin definition of dieting, I guess. But, um, uh, but anyway... Uh, and we think, well, how could God keep coming back for me? You know, isn't he about fed up with me? Here's how Paul addresses that. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, the cross... Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, the power of the resurrection. You see, when Jesus saves us, he saves us from our sin, past, present, and future. 
You know, some of us have this idea that Jesus died for my sins. And when I accept Jesus, he forgives me all all of my sins up to that point. And I better be good from then on. Because if I sin after that, what's left? Jesus died for all of our sin. It's not like, uh, you know, God is up in heaven saying, you know, I I sent my son to die uh, for the sins of mankind. But look what Wayne is up to now. I didn't know he could be that bad. (laughs) You didn't know, but, you know, God knew. You know, it's not the case that Jesus dies for our sins. And then he looks down on us and he says, well, look what Wayne's doing there. If I had known he was going to do that, I wouldn't have died. I I didn't die for that sin. I'm not going to put up with that. Jesus died for our sins. Past, present, future. You don't take advantage of that. This is what Paul's going to talk about when we get to chapter 6. He's going to talk about the life of sanctification and why it's impossible to continue in sin as, as, you know, as normal. Um, but that's, that's chapter 6. But right here the point is that when Jesus died, he saved us from death. And when he was raised from the grave, he saved us for life in the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times we don't think God loves us because we, we keep stumbling and our love is imperfect back towards God. He will save us entirely and completely. And his love never fails and it never ends. So, you know, in those, those times when you just sort of get frustrated with yourself and you see, you know, why am I, I, I keep doing the same old things and why, how long will God put up with this? The answer is until you get to heaven. And then put everything right. Meantime, he's working to conform you to the image of his dear son because his love will never give up on you. So it's, it's, it's easy to, to follow that thing where, well, you know, God doesn't love me. He loves other people, I see that, but how could he love me? How could he love me? And when those times come, the answer is set your eyes on the glory of God. Fix your gaze on the cross of Jesus Christ. Look to the hope that we have and the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, and understand that God's plan is to bring him to himself in all eternity, because God does love you. Verse 11, we'll just end end with this. More than that, we also rejoice. Notice how rejoice just ties this whole passage together. We started out, and and, uh, we have peace, and we rejoice in the glory of God, and we rejoice in suffering. Now we're rejoicing again. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received this reconciliation and God's love has just brought us to be one with him. All right, here's what I, I want you to do this week, all right? First, I want you to identify the places where you know God loves you. Oh, come on, there's got to be at least one, all right? But uh, identify those places where God loves you, where it's just evident that, it, that, that he loves you. And it might be something simple. We, we had a deacon in this church years ago, and his prayers would start like this. Oh, Lord, I thank you that when I woke up this morning, I wasn't dead. All right? That's a start. Okay? That's a start. But identify those places where you can absolutely see the, the, the love of God and thank and praise him for it. And then secondly, what I want you to do is I want you to identify those places where it's hard for you to believe God loves you. Those areas of your life that, that, you know, you think you're keeping hidden from God or you just don't think about or talk about because you know if God ever found out about it, he wouldn't love you. Go ahead and give those to God. Just confess them, give them to him, and thank him for loving you enough to send Jesus to die for you, to die for that sin because that's how much he loves you. Identify those places where, where, where he loves you and you can tell it. Identify those places that are deep and dark and, and, and just um, uh, seem to be 
uh, just very, very negative. Understand, that's the very point at which God's love comes to earth in the cross of Jesus Christ and, and reach out and let God love you there. Let that third, let that love bleed into your relationships with others. Just practice seeing the love of God by watching yourself as you love others the way God has loved you in Christ Jesus. And the last thing I want you to do, I know this is a long list, but it's not that hard if you think about it. The last thing I want you to do is when you've identified all those places where God loves you, I want you to turn heavenward and tell him, I love you too. We love him because he first loved us. Let's pray together. And Father, thank you so much for who you are. Father, I thank you even that you're beyond our comprehension and your ways are so much higher than our ways and your thoughts so much greater and higher than our thoughts. So Father, I pray that the reality of your love would come to us by the work and the power of your Holy Spirit. We would be receptive and obedient, useful in your hands, that as we experience your love for us, that love would be made known to others, that you would receive praise, honor, and glory for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.